0: Was anybody inspired to go buy themselves a Lego dinosaur after last week? Mm, okay, cool. So <laughs> I, I definitely failed in that mission last <laughs> week. Uh, if you had not, uh, you have no idea what I'm talking about there. Um, we, we used this idea of, of Legos as a uh, kind of analogy for the creation account of Genesis 1, and which is what we talked about last week. And so if you weren't with us last week, I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to uh, our, our message on Genesis 1 from... Our podcast, or downloading our app, or going to our website and listening to it and getting caught up, um, in part because within this series, which we're in part two of the series now, um, each week is going to kind of you know build on the week previous to it. So th- we're telling a story here over the next. 13 weeks we're telling a story, um, but this is part one, uh, this series is part one of three series, and so we're going to, we're going to, you know, change the graphics. You're not going to watch that video every single week, right? Um, at week six, we'll change that video up to something, I'm sorry, is equally annoying, but um, it'll, it'll, uh, it'll inspire you, hopefully. But we use this analogy of, of the Lego because this, this is cr- craziness, right? Uh, chaos, and, and you take that chaotic, the chaotic thing, and you organize organizing, this is what Legos is, essentially, you imagine a kid spilling Legos out on a table, and you take all the craziness and the chaos, and, and you put it together, piece by piece, little by little, you form something purposeful out of it, and, and that's kind of how I like to talk of the Genesis 1 account, and so hopefully that does um, speak to that. But the reason we're doing a, a series like this is in part because Genesis 1 is one of those really confusing stories of Scripture, is it not? How many of you guys are ever confused about Genesis 1, or you know somebody who was confused about Genesis 1, and maybe that person who was confused about Genesis 1 dismissed all of Scripture because they just could not swallow Genesis 1. And that's what happens, right? We know a few stories of Scripture in Scripture, but we don't know the story of Scripture. And so this series and the two that are going to follow it are really our attempts at walking through all of Scripture so that we know the story of Scripture, and then we can insert some of those stories that confuse us into their appropriate places. And so last week we began this discussion of uh, Genesis 1. What we learned is that Genesis 1 is really ahead of its time in its worldview, I mean, there there was nothing else like it within its day. The idea that there was only one God would have just been mind-blowing to the first readers who would have read it. One God goes into creation and moves creation forward. He's still in chaos, and he's bringing light into darkness. And this is an anthem of hope to a people who had only ever known slavery and oppression and misery their whole lives. This is a people who are just coming out of slavery in Egypt. Man, this, this Genesis 1 account would have been a declaration of hope. That God is for them. And it would have been amazing to have learned that. And so we learned then in this story of creation that we are actually made in God's image. And we too then have been imbued with this task of co-laboring and and co-ruling with God over creation. We're supposed to take the unproductive that we see and and the unorganized and the dark that we see and we're supposed to bring it somewhere. We're supposed to bring it into a state of productivity and and organization and light. That we have a task, in other words. And even more, humanity is the pinnacle of the story. Unlike all the other creation accounts that were in existence in their day, uh, we are the pinnacle of the story. We're not an afterthought. God made us with a purpose to be like Himself, that He wanted to flood our lives with His love so that in turn we might love others. We are the pinnacle of the count, we are the crowning of achievement. Unlike other creation accounts, we weren't made as slaves. We were given inherent worth and inherent dignity from the very beginning. We were supposed to be in love relationship with our creator. But if this is to be a genuine love relationship, then it must be chosen. And so God had to give us options. Because God didn't want robots upon his earth to till the soil and to make something of it. He wanted to be in a relationship with people. And if we were to be in a genuine loving relationship with God, then he said it must be chosen. So I must put some options within creation. And so what do we have here? We have God putting humanity into this garden. And in this garden, there are trees. And we are left with this choice to make, right? Are, are, are humans going to take from the tree they're not supposed to eat? Are they going to declare themselves kings and judge? Are they going to declare themselves self-made, self-autonomous? Or are they going to partner with God and join in God and his creative work? What's going to happen? And so understand at the very beginning that God allows for the capacity of evil. He allows for the capacity of rebellion, the capacity for sin, because love, which to God is of utmost importance. Love necessitated it. It required it. It required the choice. And so we are going to pick up the story just there this morning. You guys may know this story. It's in Genesis 3 of your scripture if you have it with you. Otherwise, the text will be on the screen. Here's how it begins. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now immediately, when we think of the serpent, we think of Satan, usually, I think. And the New Testament authors certainly would have related this serpent in Genesis 3 to Satan. But if you were a very first reader, just having come out of slavery in Egypt and you would have seen this serpent figure working its way into God's creation, you would not have associated with Satan. You would have thought immediately back to your time in slavery in Egypt. You see, the snake was a very prominent figure in Egypt, and in Egyptian mythology, where they had just come from, right? They had, this, um, they had seen the commotion that snakes would cause. Snakes would oftentimes be the source of entire crop fields being decimated. There there are stories of um, Israelite children being bitten and dying because of snakes. Poisonous snakes would come into their camps at night. There there are stories of when when women would open up a, a pot, they would see a coiled snake inside. And that snake would lurch at them and it would jump at them and it would bite them. Within the mythological side of the whole thing within Egypt, snakes had the power to paralyze someone with their eyes. There were snake demons who haunted children. Some of these snake demons had wings. Some of them spat fire. Some of them were holding knives in their hands, I guess. But the the, the snake was a feared creature to the Israelites because it was such a prominent uh, figure within the Egyptian state. The snake in its upright threatening attacking position was the symbol of the Pharaoh. You can see right here on the Pharaoh's head, two upright snakes in attack position. I mean, these guys are ready to pounce and destroy. And the Pharaoh was the chief principal originator of chaos in the land he demanded more and more and more from the israelites but he gave them less and less and less and so the snake was a creature of chaos to the israelites they would have feared the snake and that's why later in the book of numbers when the israelites are complaining about their situation they want to go back to in slavery in egypt i mean they, they actually say this to god we would be better off in egypt why did we ever leave egypt the slavery, the oppression, the misery. Yeah, well, here we're thirsty, you know? In the desert, we're thirsty. And so they asked to go back to Egypt. And so what does God do? He sends snakes into their camps to remind them of the chaos of Egypt, to remind them of the horrible situation, to remind them of how brutal and oppressive and miserable it truly was. And so here we have the snake, a sphered creature of the Israelites. And he slithers his way into the co-laboring, chaos-extinguishing efforts of God. The vocation that humanity had been given as his image bearers. And he props himself up in attack position. Snake slithers his way into the garden. He attacks himself up into into attack position. And he says, "Did, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You guys ever had a conversation like this before? Someone approaches you having heard what someone else had said, and they said, Did he actually just say that? <laughs> did, did he really just say that? Did those words actually just come out of his mouth? I mean, I cannot believe that. He didn't really say that, did he? Like, you would never believe that person would ever actually say that. How offensive, how gross, how demeaning. God didn't really tell you that you can't eat from the, tru- the, from the fruit in the garden, did he? And Eve responds, uh, Yeah, he did. Why do you ask? And the serpent would say, oh, I knew it. I, 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 I knew it. I mean, you're the one who's cultivating the earth. Yeah? You're the one breaking your back out here every day, making these shrubs come up out of the ground and making this stuff grow. You should be able to eat what you want to eat. And Eve says, well, you know, we are, we are free to eat of any tree in the garden. God just told us not to eat of the tree in the middle of the garden because... If you touch that tree, if you eat of that tree, then you will surely die. It actually sounds like God is trying to protect us. And the serpent would say, well, <laughs> yeah, it's, it sounds like that, doesn't it? But you won't die. No, no, no. You're not, not going to die. The only reason God actually says that is because he's protecting himself. He knows that if you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and the truth about him will be revealed. You'll become like him. And if you are like him, then you're going to, man, he's going to have to scoot over and he's going to have to share his throne. And so he'd much rather keep you in the dark. He'd much rather keep you under his foot. He'd much rather keep his throne to himself. I mean, look at the picture that the serpent is painting of God in this text. Humans are a threat to God. And when God is threatened, he becomes greedy and manipulative and power-hungry. And all of a sudden, Adam and Eve begin to doubt God's love for them, and all of a sudden, they begin to doubt his purpose for them. I mean, remember that humanity was made to be like God, right? To co-rule, to co-labor with God. And all of a sudden, they're met with this idea that although God may say that he's on their team, that he's on the same page as them, that they're on the same side, that they're trying to do this thing together, you know, produce creation that is good, move it forward. He actually doesn't mean it. Otherwise, they'd have the knowledge of what is good and what is evil. You know, all the serpent really does in this text is point out the fact that this knowledge of good and evil is a component that God has, but that humans don't. And if we were truly to be made in God's image, then shouldn't we have received everything that God has? I mean, maybe God forgot. Maybe God forgot. And so what the servant does is he points out to the fact that you are supposed to be made in God's image, but you don't have this component that God has. And so, man, if, if that's the case, if you're meant to be made in God's image, why don't you go retrieve that which is supposed to be yours? The servant tells him to go get it. And so when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, did you know that perception creates your reality? And your perception is always based in your past experiences. And so Eve looks at this tree, and it looks like a lot of the other trees in the garden, and the tree is beautiful, and its fruit is beautiful. I mean, she was probably thinking, you know what, if this tree would actually produce death, then you would think that the fruit would just be like rotten off of it, and it would be, you know, thorny and spiky and gross. Like, who would ever want to eat this thing? But it it's not. It's, it's a beautiful tree. It looks really nice. It's very inviting. And so, man, it can't really be that bad. Can it? Plus, it's going to help me be like God. Which, isn't that what God ultimately wants for us? And so she took some of it, and she ate it. And not only that, she calls over Adam... And she says, hey, Adam, I got this fruit. Uh, Yeah, Adam, I I know what you're thinking. Yeah, I took it from the forbidden tree. I I did, but it's really tasty. I mean, Adam, you should try some. Yeah, you know, yeah, the the forbidden tree. Yeah, okay, that's the tree that God said that we would die if we ever ate of it. But man, Adam, it looks so nice, and it's so, it's tasty, you know? Yeah, you're going to die if you eat it, but Adam, try it. And Adam, like all men, because we're idiots, he takes some, and he eats of the tree. I mean, how many times do you have to know not to eat from the forbidden tree? Otherwise, you will die. She holds it out in front of him. Adam, come and eat, man. It's so tasty. It looks really nice. Yeah, you're going to die, but take it. Okay, sure. (laughs) She took it. He ate it. And then immediately three things happen. Judgment is at the very heart of the sinful nature because immediately Adam and Eve Gained this knowledge of what is good from what is evil, what is right from what is wrong. In other words, they declared themselves to be judge. And it's at the very heart of the sinful nature. We open our eyes for a single second, and don't we make judgments upon everything? Before we can finish blinking our eyes, I think, we've already decided whether the person in front of us we want to hire, or date, or hate, or make friends with. These first impressions, they they color our interactions from that day forward and forever on for that person. You know, research shows that all this can happen outside of our awareness, and it happens in the blink of an eye. And so we are actually unconscious to how this process works. But this process informs our prejudice, and it informs our bias, and it informs our stereotypes. We make judgments upon everything that inform the way that we interact with those things from that day forward. And as we judge, we sit on a self-made seat and look down upon a world that we either like or dislike. And in the process, we say, you know, I have the right to determine what is right from what is wrong, and what is good from what is evil, and what I determine to be good is good, and what I determine to be evil is evil. I, in other words, am also the king. See, Adam and Eve and all of humanity developed this heart that is so self-consumed that it recreates the world to its own liking. A heart that is so self-absorbed that it only cares for that which will benefit itself. A heart that is so selfish and self-reigning and self-centered that it really sees everybody else as either a threat to it or a tool for its advancement. And maybe you've been on the side of somebody else's tool. Maybe you've been under the foot of somebody else and they only saw you as w- in, a, in a way that could benefit themselves. Maybe you have experienced that. Or maybe you know that you are judgmental. and Maybe you know that you are a king. You see, what I- it happened with Adam and Eve is that their hearts were flooded with pride. And pride is really the essential vice. It is the utmost evil. All other sins flow and grow from it. Did you guys know that? Everything else that we do that is destructive and hurtful of other people all flow from this essential vice of pride. But pride is such an odd thing. Especially in the day and age in which we live, pride is such an odd thing. Everybody fights for pride, and yet none of us admit that we're guilty of it. We celebrate it in ourselves, but we actually loathe it in others. There is no fault which makes someone more unpopular, and yet we are completely unconscious of how it affects us. And the more I think that we have it, the more we dislike it in others. The more proud you are, the more that you will dislike it in others. The more that somebody else's pride will offend you. Pride is essentially competitive. It's always relational. See, pride doesn't delight in having something only in having something that somebody else doesn't have. And so it doesn't delight in being rich or clever or good-looking. Pride simply delights in being richer or cleverer or better-looking than the guy next to you. If everybody else became equally rich and equally clever and equally good-looking, then nobody would be proud about it. It's essentially competitive and it's always relational. It's in seeing what other people lack and celebrating those qualities in yourself that makes pride so disgusting. Pride will always tear other people down for the sake of puffing the self up. And my friends, if you want to know how proud you are, ask yourself, how do you feel when other people succeed? You know, other people who are in a similar stage of life as you, other people who are um, a similar occupation, other people who have similar age of kids, how do you feel when they succeed? How do you you feel when you go on Facebook and you see that they took another trip to Disney World? How do you feel when they move into the bigger house? How do you feel when they get the promotion at work? How do you feel when they make the deal and you don't? How do you feel when other people succeed? If you want to know how proud you, are, ask yourself how regularly you see the faults in others, Because I think one of the things that pride does is that it filters out the evil in us, but it filters out the good in others. So ask yourself, do I see fault in other people? And how regularly do I do that? Ask yourself how often you put on a mask in order to appear different than you actually are. Do you find yourself just kind of like, you know, softening up your appearance? Not necessarily your physical appearance, but the language you use, your behavior when you're around certain people or in certain crowds. How often do you wear the mask that isn't truly you? Ask yourself how you respond to rebuke or challenge. If someone were to come to you and say, why did you say that or why did you say it like that? How do you respond to that? When someone comes to you and challenges your character or rebukes your character, what do you do? Are you defensive? Are you threatened by that? Or do you acknowledge that and humble yourself? My friends, this is ground zero. This is where it all begins. All the chaos and the pain and the frustration and the angst that you experience, not only in the world at large, but in your personal lives, all begins with this. This is ground zero. This is where it all comes back to Pride is where it all comes back to. see, all the frustration and all the anger and all your relational deterioration that you've ever experienced or are experiencing can all be traced back to your pride. And notice that I didn't say your husband's pride. Notice I didn't say your child's pride. Notice I didn't say your mother's pride or your co-worker's pride or your friend's pride. That's exactly what pride wants us to think, by the way, that it's their fault. I don't have any role to play in this. You know, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't, I didn't contribute to the chaos. So let me address your mothers and your coworkers and your children for a second. All of your frustration and anger and relational deterioration that you've experienced and are experiencing can all be traced back to your pride as well. This is ground zero, my friends. This is where it all begins. And the first step towards a cure is to recognize that you are proud. And so where are you guys at this morning? Where's your your proud meter? Are you willing to admit that you're a little self-centered? That you're a little selfish? You've chosen yourself over the others and that you do things that tear other people down just so that you can puff yourself up? Because my friends, pride will kill you. You know, one of the reasons that God told Adam and Eve that death would come when they put their will above his was because pride will kill you. Not only does pride initiate death, but pride will keep you from reaching out and crying out for a savior. And instead, pride will always turn you towards religion. You see, one of the things, one of the other things that happened when they eat of the fruit was that they experienced guilt. We're told that the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked. I mean, their sin had been exposed. Their sin had been exposed. So what do you do knowing that you're guilty? What do you do knowing that you're full of shame? What do you do knowing that they're broken? Well, they do something in order to fix it and to conceal it and to hide it and to cover it up. Adam and Eve do something themselves in order to try to fix the problem. They sewed fig leaves together. And they made coverings for themselves. And so they recognized that they were exposed, that their sin was exposed, that they were guilty, and so they covered themselves up. But that didn't take away their guilt. And so what do they do, knowing that their conscience is bearing down on them, knowing that God is approaching? Well, they hide from God in the trees of the garden. Yeah, the, 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 the covering myself up with the garments that we've made didn't do anything to, to, to remove my guilt, and so I'm going to try something else. I'm going to run away. They try to fix it. They try to cover it up. And I know I talk about this all the time. But the reason I talk about this all the time is because this is the universal scenario that everybody is dealing with. And so the reason I talk about this all the time is because this is your coworker and this is your neighbor and this is your friend and this is your family member whom you love. They too are experiencing guilt and shame and brokenness. That is a universal human experience. And they are all doing something trying to fix it. They're running away, they're covering it up, they're concealing it. They are doing something in order to try to fix the problem that they know that they have. Now, we don't make garments from plants. But we certainly do run away, do we not? We hide, we conceal, we run. Sometimes we lie and we cheat. Sometimes we turn to the bottle to just wash it all away. Sometimes we turn to drugs in order to try to numb the pain that we're feeling. But religion tells us to do something to make ourselves feel better about our guilt. We've all done this, by the way. We've all attempted this in one way or another. But religion does not because it cannot remove your guilt. And so Adam and Eve, they sin. And so what do they do? They try to make garments to cover up their guilt, but it didn't work. It may have worked for a little while, but then God comes around again. And what do they do? They try to hide this time, but it didn't work. Guilt persists through all of our attempts at removing it. And all of our religious pursuits fail us. And so what do we do? We so often turn to blame shifting, do we not? We blame someone else for what they did or why we did what we did. We blame our circumstances. We blame our long lines. We blame the weather. We blame the lack of money. We blame, we blame, we blame because, my friends, pride will never admit fault. So what does Adam do when God asks him why he's hiding and why he's covered up all that he's done? He blame shifts. <laughs> yeah, it was that woman you put in here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and yeah, I ate it. But God, don't, you know, point your finger at me. I'm not the one to blame here. If you're gonna, you know, cast blame upon anybody, point your finger at the woman. And and God, if we're being honest, like point some fingers back at yourself because you're the one who put her here with me, right? So like, I didn't have anything to do with this, but she did. And you had a little bit of, you know, responsibility as well. But God, I didn't didn't do anything. I'll blame, I'll blame, I'll blame, I'll blame, I'll blame. And God says, Adam, stay put. You know, go sit in the corner. You're going on timeout. I'm going to come back to you in a minute. He turns his attention to the woman. And she says, well, it was the serpent. He deceived me. God, it's, it's not my fault. You know, if you're looking for a responsible party, then look at the serpent. So God turns to Eve and he says, hey, you stay put. Go sit in time out. I'll come back to you in a minute as well. He turns his attention to the serpent. He says this, because you have done this, cursed are you. Above all the livestock and all the wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now remember that the serpent is in threatening, attacking mode. He's up ready to pose, to, to thrust forward and pounce on its prey. And so when God says that the serpent is going to crawl on his belly, he's not saying that snakes used to have legs. He's saying, I'm going to put you in submission. You're going to start crawling on the ground. You're not going to be in attack position anymore. You're going to be in submissive position. God is saying that I'm going to take my authority and I will put you in your place. This serpent in particular, I will put in your place. You will not thwart my plan to bring creation under my loving rule. And one of the ways he's going to do this is through the knowledge of our burden. And so you have to understand that the realization of your pain and your angst and your, and your frustration, your brokenness, the conscience, the guilt, and the shame that we experience, all of this is a gift from God. You see, the, the proud, I think, tend to blame God for their problems. Maybe you guys have done that before. The proud tend to blame God for their problems the bad things that happen. But what we learn here is that God wants us to see the proof, the brokenness, the guilt, the shame, all of this is proof of a wayward, broken world that we live. And God did not do it, but God is going to provide a solution for it. He says, I'm going to put enmity, it's a deep-seated hatred, between you, the serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring, which is evil at large, right? Wickedness, chaos, everything that flows from this experience. And her offspring, humanity. And my friends, this burden is a gift and you need to see it as a gift. I mean, can you imagine if, can you imagine if you didn't feel guilty for the wrongs that you've done? If you never felt guilty for the wrongs that you've done and you just continued to hurt others without restraint? What kind of world would we live in? Can you imagine the type of life you'd live if you never felt shame for any of your behavior? And you just continued to do those beha- shameful behaviors without any conviction? How many people you would hurt along the way? What kind of chaos you'd throw into the world? Can you imagine? Can you imagine the type of world we'd live in if no one ever mourned or grieved loss? If no one ever mourned or grieved pain or death? I mean, we would live in anarchy all the time and everywhere. But God in his care and love reels it in through giving us enmity towards the work of the evil one in our lives and in the world. And because this is not God's ideal for the world, he created, in this chaotic situation that Adam and Eve have kind of thrust into creation, this isn't his loving rule, it's not what he designed creation for, it's not what he wanted. He states at the very, very beginning that he is going to do something about it. Not, hey guys, why don't you just develop some religious system so that you can try to fix the world on your own. That's not what he says. He says, I'm going to come to the rescue. He will crush your head. An offspring of woman will crush your head, serpent. But you, serpent, will strike his heel. One day, a man will be born of woman. I'm going to send him into the world. And he is going to crush the head of the serpent. He is going to destroy the evil one and all the ramifications that come with the evil one, even though it's going to cost him his life. My friends, God is coming to the rescue. I'm going to invite Emily forward, and we're going to sing one final song as we reflect on this. So I I want you to notice this. Um, God did not congratulate Adam and Eve for being so clever and thinking that they could just cover up their sin. Oh, you sinned, yay, okay, oh man, you put on some garments, that's wonderful, that's, that's really good. He didn't say that. He doesn't say, oh yeah, you're ashamed of your behavior and you hid, that's great. You know, that's, that's a solution to the problem. He never condones religion, in other words. Even, we're going to learn, as we get to the era of the temple and the sacrifice, God still isn't condoning religion. God never condones religion. It was never God's ideal No, understanding that we are broken, sinful, messes of people was meant to draw us closer to his grace and to his mercy and to his forgiveness. Never towards self-sufficiency. We're going to talk more about that in just a couple of weeks. But my friends, we are in the same mess. Do you guys recognize that? Like, please tell me you recognize this, right? We're in the same mess as Adam and Eve, right? The, the pride that infiltrated their hearts infiltrates our hearts as well. And the chaos that disrupted all of creation back then still disrupts creation today. The death that infiltrated their lives infiltrates our life as well. In our pride, we are dead. In our self-sufficiency, in our religious observance, and in our religious attempts to fix ourselves, we are dead, And God says, that was never my ideal. Guys, I'm coming to the rescue. The source of evil is going to be put away. Even though it's going to cost my servant his life. And so here are the words that God speaks over your mess and into your mess. I'm coming to the rescue. But you need to acknowledge something. You need to know that pride is trying to keep you from crying out to me. That pride is trying to keep you from crying out to me. And so please acknowledge the pride in your hearts. My friends, can we do that this morning? Take that inventory. Again, if you took notes, go back and listen to this. We'll post these questions on social media later. Take some inventory of the pride in your heart and ask yourselves, am I a proud person? Do I recognize my brokenness? And then what do I do with it, right? Even if I do recognize it, pride will still tell me to turn to religion to try to fix it myself because that's what I do as a proud person. I don't need help. I don't need, I don't need anybody's charity. I'm strong. I can do this on my own. That's what pride tells you to do. But if you acknowledge that you are proud and you say, God, I don't, I can't. I, I can't do this any longer. You need to be broken of it. And so if you can't find or muster up any humility in yourself, then ask God to humble you. And hum- humility is not always gentle, and it's not always fun, but my friends, pride will keep you in your death, and it will keep you from crying out for a Savior. And so whatever challenge humility might bring your way is f- well worth the price. I'm going to say a prayer for us this morning as we close out our time together. If you find yourself to, to be full of pride this morning, if, if you acknowledge that you're a sinner but you don't know where to turn, then, then I would just ask you to pray along with me and see if God can open your heart to, to your realization that you need him. Father in heaven, you've called us into something amazing to co-rule and to co-labor with you in producing a world that is beautiful, and we have gotten in the way of that. And there is sin in my life that all comes from a prideful heart. And I acknowledge it, God, because, you know, all of those questions are true of me. Like, to some extent, I wear masks. I I look at other people's faults and I judge them. I filter out the evil in myself as I filter out the goodness of others. When people challenge me, I get threatened. And I lash out in anger. And I'm insecure, Father, because when I see other people succeeding and doing really fun things and amazing things and progressing through life, I fall into some self-pity, God. And I know, Father, that I have turned to religion in order to fix myself. And it may not have been done in a church or a temple. or but But I've tried to do something myself to try to fix the problem that I know I have. And pride is going to keep bringing me back to that path over and over again. It's going to tell me to try more and more and more. And so, Father, I'm acknowledging right now that I've tried and it doesn't work. And so, God, I want you. And I pray that you would humble me, Father, and I pray that um, as I experience humility that I would turn my attention to you and what you are doing in me. And day by day by day by day that I would become less and less prideful, that I would think of myself less. Not that I would think less of myself, but I would just think of myself less. And that my attention wouldn't be so much focused on myself, but it would be focused on others. And how I might embrace them and love them and not be judgmental, but, but extend your unconditional love to them. Father, as you have loved me unconditionally. And Father, I I, I acknowledge all this, that I am a broken mess of a person, okay? And that um, I'm... I'm I'm eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and I do it all the time. And so, Father, I want um, to know what you have accomplished for me, that you came in and you crushed the head of the serpent, that I do not need to be enslaved to this pride any longer. I do not need to be enslaved to this death or to this sin any longer. But, God, you have crushed the head of the evil one even through your death, Father. But you have risen to new life, defeating death for all time, Father, so so thank you. It does not have to have mastery of me anymore, Father, and so I pray that as I trust more and more and more and more in you, every single day as I renew my trust in you, Father, that you would give me the power of your spirit, that I might live a new life, Father, that I would not be controlled or enslaved to the pride within me, but Father, I would be humble, and that that humility, I would learn to love and to serve and to be like you. For that is truly what you have called us to do. May we pick up the mantle of co-laboring and co-ruling once again. Father, thank you for what you've done on my behalf. I trust in you. Do a good work in me. And all who agreed said, Amen.